This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what are we talking about? Well, um, based on our last podcast dealing with the Ukraine and talking about um, kind of history there, there's a lot of other fear going on. You see a lot of articles being written about a fear of a possible um, nuclear exchange that could happen. I like how um, you put that exchange. Nuclear exchange, yeah. No, <laughs> like they're handing each other gifts. Well, that's what it's called, the nuclear exchange. You know, I mean, one, one country does it. So basically, look at the, a little bit of a history of nuclear weapons and um, what the nations that have them, a little bit of like how they were developed, why they were developed, the different types that were developed, um, where they are today, which I think a lot of people would be interesting to notice. Because yeah, who I has know, them? <laughs> who can use them? Who has yeah. them and where they are? Because that's another thing, too. There's nations that have them. There's nations that host them which is yeah. also something I've uh, different and just kind of like the instance in time, some of the different tests that they did just to give a quick thing, like one nuclear weapon detonated over New York city. The idea is it would cause over 58 million, 300, 3,160 estimated fatalities because yeah, one of these single number. warheads, yeah, they could kill hundreds of thousands of people. And instantly you have the lasting devastating um, humanitarian and environmental consequences it would have. So yeah. this basically is if you take all the countries in the world, there's an estimated total of roughly 13,000 nuclear weapons, and most of them are many, many times more powerful than the ones dropped on Hiroshima. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, my God. So they, much more like, powerful than the ones, the ones dropped on Hiroshima are in Nagasaki were, were nothing compared to the type that they have today. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about, I guess, difference between an, an A-bomb and an H-bomb, right? Pure fission weapons, boosted fission weapons, staged you know, thermonuclear weapons. I mean, there's how they how you know deployment. So it, I mean, we're not trying to scare people. There's not uh, no no one wants a nuclear war, but we're just you know we're not really talking about nuclear war as much as why they're the out there and the history deterrence, the weapons of them themselves, because it's a unique thing if you think about it. Because then since 1945, hum, humanity basically has a means to destroy itself. Yep. So that's something that you got to like that we. It's in our own power to wipe ourselves out with these weapons. And, you know, you mentioned that there's about 13,000, right? But if you look at the numbers, um, I guess we just get this out of the way before we kind of backtrack and talk about the history of how we got to this point. But if you look at the numbers, they are mostly United States and Russia. And Russia. Um, Russia has them. more, I believe, right? Well, yes, they have Russia more, has more than the U.S. They have more right now, I believe, right? Yeah, we're number two. So Russia has 6,255 nuclear warheads, and we'll get into what that means you know, going forward. But the United States has 5,500, I think it's 5,550 nuclear warheads. And then behind that, so just a comparison, like Russia has over 6,000, we have over 5,000. And then the third uh, yeah. in line is China with 350 nuclear warheads. Uh, then France, France has like two, not, 290, yep. Yep. United Kingdom 225. So it's a little bit different. Pakistan has over 100, India. Um, India, Israel. Israel, yes and no. They have 90 nuclear warheads, but there's like some controversy. Like, Yeah, but they're like, yeah. Do they? Do they not? How they got it? Are they in their control? Are they in the United States control? Like the exactly. operation control? We know that. We believe North Korea has about 45 one. 45 yeah, weapons. and they think like even the ones they have, that we we don't we're not sure if they have them built, but they have the capability. The capability, and we're not sure they might have them. We're not sure of their deployment capabilities, which exactly. is also a big thing. You can have a nuclear bomb, 
and being able to ha build a nuclear bomb is one thing. Being able to deploy it is something very different. But that's even it. Those, are all, those has, are only countries. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, there's nine. But then there's a, yep. there's a bunch around the world too. I guess you want to do that now or talk. Yeah, about we just that get now. out of the way. And then so we'll, there's we'll also five states hosting nu nuclear weapons. You have Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Turkey. They all host U.S. nuclear weapons. So the United States is like, listen, we maintain operational control of these weapons, but they're stationed in these countries and they help U.S. nuclear war planning. Yeah. So they're basically there. And that's one of the things that kind of started a lot of these issues in the Ukraine, if you look at the Russian argument, right? Because they're basically essentially nuclear weapons out there on their doorstep in some of those countries are very close. And um, it just gives us more, the, more, more of a first strike or defensive strike capability. Yeah. All right. So let's backtrack, Tom. Let's, uh, let's talk about how we got here. I mean, the one logical place to start when it comes to talking about nuclear weapons uh, actually deals with the atomic bomb. And, and that goes back to early 1940s, where you have the very known today, and even at the time, very known Albert Einstein yeah. writes a letter to President FDR in the United States. And in this letter, he states that he has information that Germany and German physicists are in a process of trying to break up an atom, which will cause a chain reaction and ultimately release massive amounts of energy. Massive, and yeah. Yes. And the idea here is this, this is designed, you know, the physicists are really trying to break the atom for good purposes. They're trying to create clean, powerful energy. However, what he Einstein tells FDR is that the Germans are trying to take that energy and convert that and make that into a bomb. So with that, that suggestion, say it's not just the Germans, it's the Nazis. Let's Nazis. get that clear. Like, yeah, that's good. These are Nazis. Yeah, yeah. So you can think of a Nazis having a nuclear weapon. And that's basically exactly. what Einstein is talking about. If the Nazis have this type of weapon, it's not going to be good. And he says, listen, they're going to be working on it. We should do it too. Yep. And then FDR actually offers him the job. Like, all right, you want to spearhead this thing? And Einstein's like, no, I, I don't want no part of this. Like, I'm, I'm chilling. What we do is we create the top secret Manhattan Project, which you probably guys remember learning about in school. This Manhattan Project, again, super top secret. This is in Today, August of 1942, just to give like yep. kind of like a context, a, um, time span context. So America's yep. at war. The Japanese yes. have bombed Pearl Harbor, right? We're at war. World War II is in full swing. You have everything going on in Russia, right? Um, everything going on in Germany. But so we're building this bomb. And it's really, it's considered at the time um, like a race, right? That we're, right? that we're racing the Germans. We have to be, do this before the Germans finish one. And there were other countries looking at this too. We find out later on Japan was even looking at making a nuclear weapon. They were yeah. not as um, far ahead as the United States yeah. were. But they invested, FDR invested a lot of money. I forget exactly what it was. But it was a lot of like billions of dollars by today's standards. This was in the 1940s. Oh, yeah. He's putting. Oh, it this, so know, the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project. Los actually, Alamos, New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it employed more than 130,000 people and cost nearly $2 billion back then, which is equivalent to about $23 billion in today's money, you know, to try to create this. And it takes, you know, better part of what, three, four years to get this three going. Years, yeah. Well, they eventually make the first ever successful, right, atomic yep. explosion. On July 16th, 1945, the first ever successful nuclear test. Yeah. And they, it's, they make a 15 Trinity. to 20 um, yeah, kiloton nuclear weapon, right? They detonate yeah. it in New Mexico. It's still the, uh, actually, you can, they have a plaque at the site, I believe, right? Yeah. It, um, the radiation is actually 10 times higher than natural. It's still there at that time. And this was known as the Trinity so, test, right? Yeah, the Trinity yeah. test, it goes off. You probably see a lot of the images online as far as like people. The fire um, bombs and whatnot. Or the explosion, and you have Oppenheimer's right, um, famous words, right? That um, 
I've become death destroyer of, wor- of worlds. Is that Hindu text? Yep. Um, when, he, when he talks about that, because like a lot of them, a lot of the scientists are all like shaking hands or so excited what they just did. And a lot of them right later on, like they didn't kind of realize, oh my God, what did we just do? Yep. You know, like Again, they, they were thinking they, in terms of like we're creating energy. This is this is t- t- taking like theoretical they physics. They, they knew, yeah, but they knew they were making a bomb. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. They but the government has given them, it. you know, the government's given them funding that they always wanted. And as far as they're concerned, like this is the first time that you, you know, you're getting two billion dollars you would have never gotten yeah. from the government to create yeah, this yeah, technology. This. But also, it's a, yeah, exactly. Make this, but look at the date, right? This is July 1945. The war in Europe is over. Yep. So that was a lot. That was a big thing. They're saying, well, we, when, when, when VE Day happens, a lot of the scientists are like, all right, well, we're not, we're, and they were surprised that the military still wanted to keep on trying to make this bomb. And they're like, well, why? The Germans didn't make it. And they're finding out that they weren't even close to making one. So yeah. and that could be a future podcast, I guess, talk about the Nazi atomic bomb, right? That's yeah. That's something that you see out that's there. That's a cool one. But um, they're like, why? Well, so what happens, right? So we have it. Japan? We have the weapons, we have right? It. We have it, yes. So there's a lot of debate, and that's a whole other issue, right? Debate whether or not to use this. But the idea is we spent all this money, right? We have it. Mm-hmm. We have to use it, okay? That's and we are idea. still, to this day, the only nation to use an atomic the, weapon yeah. against a people. In war, against someone yeah. else. The only time it's ever been used against any other population. The of the world. Now, both countries, the United States, if you can actually look this up on YouTube, there's an interesting video. It shows every single atomic explosion on the history of the planet. They show that all the countries that do it and where it happens, and it really heats, and they show them like an order and the size, and it really goes crazy during the '60s, obviously. Oh yeah. So the United States detonates a lot more than anybody else. We detonate 100%. over a thousand, over a thousand. Um, I think Russia doesn't even come close to that number. Yeah. Actually, detonate. They build a lot, but they don't detonate them. Yeah. Um, we were, we're testing. Detonating. We're testing. We're detonating. We're finding things out. But the first one is obviously dropped on Hiroshima, August 6, 1945. Uh, it's a uranium bomb, mm-hmm. and it kills 140,000 um, people within yep. uh, within a few months, and many more die later on from radiation illness. Then August 9, 1945, the second one is dropped, and estimated 74,000 people died by the end of the 1945. And that's a plutonium-based bomb. So they're kind of seeing which one works differently at different methods what little man and fat boy i believe right or is the other way yeah. around little yeah yeah no it was you're right it's the first one is little man and the other one's fat yeah. boy little sorry no it's little boy and fat man fat little boy man, being yeah. the first one yeah so they dropped them and you know they devastating effects and people are shocked because you have to understand like we grew up at a different time even us and we're a little bit older than maybe some people listening but we grew up in the, it, we grew up right. We knew of atomic weapons, you know. Yeah. If you had no idea, if you're not a scientist, you don't know about atomic weapons. And suddenly you find out that the war is over and it's over because of an atomic bomb. One bomb caused all this devastation. They're used to, you know, seeing like you know, 500 bombers, you know, dropping yeah, fire like bombs and stuff bombing, like that. Yeah. Conventional bombing, not this nuclear. And they didn't even have any idea. They knew of radiation, but didn't fully understand radiation. Also, at this time, fully, you yeah. know. So it was, it, was a, it was a lot of what ifs and trying to understand scenarios to go back to just the Trinity test. I'm sure you can look this up and you can read about it. It's interesting. A lot of the scientists were actually taking bets that they were, it was a small possibility. I'm sure you saw the speed that they thought. Yeah, that, it um, crack the Earth's it, crust. It could crack the Earth's crust or ignite the oxygen in the atmosphere and set the entire planet afire. Yeah. And they were <laughs> like, like, yeah, why? let's still press this button. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of did some math and said, it shouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a very small chance, but like, even if it's a very small chance of it combusting all the oxygen on the planet at the exact I... same time, it's probably not, I don't know, but they, yeah. they, they do it. It happens, but you know, it's one of those things. 
No. But shortly after that, um, just give a little hindsight, in um, January 24th, 1946, the UN actually calls for elimination of atomic weapons. Yep, I did see that. And they set up a commission to address nuclear weapons. So at this point, we say no, because we're the only country that has them. Yeah, exactly. So that's the big for thing long. for not a while. Long. It's not for long, because obviously, you know, the Soviets get one pretty soon after that. By 1946, they have their own. They detonate their own. Um it is basically from stealing United States. Oh, well, forty nine. I thought it was nineteen forty nine. Yeah. The U.S. is sorry. Forty nine. Yes. August yeah. 29, Yeah. Yep. First successful atomic bomb test. Uh, basically, no monopoly and, for United States nuclear weapons. Yeah. And that's going to start the arms race. That's starting the arms race officially. You could say. Yeah. Yep. Right. The Cold War probably starts sooner, but the arms race now they have the atomic bomb too. Now, all right, what's going on here? So I don't. You want to talk about? Yeah. I mean, let's kind of get into this arms race, right? I mean, the premise here, arms race, the idea of an arms race has been around for pretty much ever. It's yeah. It's just you know, it's this idea of just like countries increasing the size and quality of the military resources, you know, and they're trying to gain some form of military and political superiority. So. You know, before atomic weapons, it was the Industrial Revolution brought about dreadnoughts, right? That was the whole thing yeah, of that was a big thing, yeah. France, Russia building powerful uh, navies, Royal Navy, and dreadnoughts, and it was always something about making better technology. All of it obviously changed. We're not talking about ships anymore once we have atomic weapons. And what essentially starts to happen here is once the USSR has its first successful atomic bomb in 1949, first of all, we're like, how did they get this information? Which leads to this idea of spies within the United States. It's a, you know, Red Scare, McCarthyism. We mentioned a little bit of this in our 1950s podcast, but UK actually carries their own nuclear tests in Western Australia within a year by 1950. So the United States now is like, all right, like we don't have the monopoly anymore. We're no longer have that one thing that other people would fear, since, especially since Russia has their own. So we go back to work. Like, let's make it bigger. Let's make it better. Um, and what they happens? do that. 1952, right? 1952, right? November 1st, the U.S. tests the first hydrogen bomb. And it detonates the first hydrogen bomb um, in the Marshall Islands. And it's 500 times more powerful than the Nagasaki bomb. Yeah. And doing some research, what I found out, they basically say, like, you have to have an atom bomb first. Basically, an H-bomb is an atom bomb on steroids. And it's basically, you need the atomic bomb is almost like the, the fuse for the hydrogen bomb to give you an idea of the yield and the power that these things have. And they detonate it, and they're, they're called like a super, the uh, Soviet Union is going to detonate theirs. Oh, within uh, a year. Not, within a year. So I yep. mean, that's when we know it. They're definitely spot, you know, they're definitely they're doing sorts of yeah. that. Yeah, they're doing those sorts of things. And we start detonating them a lot after this. You have the, um, the massive Bravo testing, right, in the yep. Bikini Atoll Islands in the Pacific Ocean. Um, contaminating a Japanese fishing boat that's nearby, the Lucky Dragon, right? A lot of residents on some islands. Some islands get just obliterated. They just wiped off the map. Map, literally, like the little dots gone off the map because just, we just, tested just an vaporized H- because, because we're using these H-bombs in the area. And we're kind of seeing out like, if, you de- if you detonate them underwater, what happens? You detonate them a- if you drop it and have them. Um... That's the thing, too. People think that it hits the ground. No, they o- these always detonate in the air because that makes the air even, more, even more of a yield. Like They actually put parachutes. All right, yeah. like the, a lot of times the parachutes is just um, so that the uh, plane dropping it can get away, and that's how these yeah. are all being detonated for the most part. These are being airdropped from planes. That's a plan at this moment yeah. in the 50s. That's yeah, that's, that's what we need too. to highlight. Yeah, this is still you need to put this on the plane and drop plane it's and, still a, and fly um, and fly it there and fly yeah. it there. And yeah. there's very few planes that can do that, and that's why it's still big for the United States because yeah, all right, Russia has it bombs too, but they don't really have a way for the bombs to get to the U.S. Where we have bases in Europe that theoretically, if we were going to bomb them, we could do. And this is what 
driving the Soviets crazy. Yeah. We, we can, we have first strike capabilities against them. They don't necessarily have that against us. Yeah. So essentially in 1953, USSR tested on, like we said, hydrogen bomb. And as we just to kind of reiterate, this is thousands time, you know, thousands times stronger than atomic weapons. And then in 1955, during the Eisenhower presidency, the United States publishes what is known as massive retaliation. It's a doctrine of massive retaliation. And basically what it does, it states that any attack on the United States or any of its allies, for that matter, would be met with incredibly destructive force. So we're basically making it known to the rest of the world that any form of aggression towards us will be met with our biggest military capabilities, that which at the time was basically it was a nu- nuclear strategy. Like we're committing ourselves to retaliate with using nukes. Yeah. And a lot of that was because they knew that if a ground war erupted in Europe at the time, they couldn't, Soviets had too many tanks basically, right? If they wanted to yeah. cross into West Germany and West Berlin, they could do it. So our deterrent yeah. was let's have more nuclear weapons. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to counter that. In the in the beginning, you also have in '55 um, Einstein, right, and another scientist by the name of uh, Bertrand Russell. They issue a warning. Um, you know, he he kind of regrets what he did in for, in uh, the '40s, Einstein, yep. and he urges all governments to um, resolve p- disputes peacefully without using nuclear weapons because they're like this isn't going to be useful. And that's when he says that quote, you know, um, World War III, right? what, what weapons will be used in World War Three, and he says, I don't know. But World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones, yeah. basically saying how we, you know, destroyed and sent back down to the to the Stone Age with yeah. this. Because it's a real few now. People are seeing this weapon. Nuclear weapons have only been around about ten years, but they're seeing like, listen, these things can wipe out everything, entire Which cities is, with know, one second. Boom, done. One second, one bomb, one plane. If it gets through, and now that these leaders are using this as like a military strategy. Like they're planning, all right, well, if we have to use it, this, these are the targets we're going to hit. This is what we're going to do. Um, you know, this is how the damage is going to cause. And it's just. Well, that's what when you watch that, when Yeah. And when you, you start seeing these uh, public announcement videos, you guys have probably seen these on YouTube where they basically build full houses and yeah. little suburb, suburban neighborhoods in the middle of like Nevada desert. And they set up cameras to kind of see the impact of a nuclear, whether they were atomic at the time or hydrogen at this point, bombs or what they would actually do to real structures. Like how would this bomb behave in a suburban environment? And it was just like super scary. And you see these things catch on fire. They actually, I think yeah. they put goats in there too. And they just bomb goats. That's nuts. Just to see, you know, because they're just trying to see their effects of radiation. You're trying to see what it was. If you ever watch uh, Indian and George and the Crystal Skulls, right? Yeah, yeah, that's why he he hides in a refrigerator. Fridge, yeah, which I don't think would work. Yeah, it's not going to Fridge, it's it's the fallout there is going to be crazy. But anyway, that's that's not the best Indiana. But all right, 1957, this is when things start to get (laughs) a little scary and a little more modern to where we are. And actually, it's, you know, we're talking about the arms race between Soviet Union and the United States to get the bigger, better weapon. But simultaneously, we also set off what is known as a space race. Because what happens is in 1957, in order to launch the first satellite into space, right, Sputnik 1, Soviet Union develops a rocket. The same rocket, all of a sudden, that is that you know brought this Sputnik into space, is also capable of carrying an atomic warhead thousands yeah. of miles away without having to fly anywhere and drop a conventional bomb. Now you could literally put it on a rocket. So and this, this is meant that lead to the ICBMs, oh yeah, right? Exactly. So that means that you know, you know, USSR basically just created in '57 the first ever intercontinental ballistic missile, a and missile that, that could things. travel and bring 
atoms, you know, nuclear weapons to anywhere. It changes everything. They don't, they don't have the system, but it's there in theory now. They don't have in the theory, system. That's exactly. not that's not going to be there yet because there's some other things that happened before that because they don't have that technology yet, but it's there. And again, that's not an easy technology to have. It's also going to reduce the size of the warhead, which is probably a good thing if you're going to use them. Yeah. It's different now. Now they can make, they have massive ICBMs with massive warheads that, yeah, you don't even know the type of yeah. yields that they could have, which I'm sure we'll talk to in a little bit. Well, and then what happens here is you have the United States actually starts thinking about this because, I mean, again, this could be a podcast. We say this all the time, but, you know, the, our entire rocket program is based off of former Nazis that we basically yes. stall at the end of World War Two. It was like a space to get the I mean, space, a race rather to get these former rocket scientists that were developing the V1 and V2 rockets for Hitler. And while the Soviets got some, we got some of those scientists as well and brought them back to our you know, respective countries and trying to develop this rocket technology. Uh, the United States actually in 1958 tests our own ICBM. So within one year, we're like, all right, like, you know, we're, we're trying our, as well to make it into space, not as successfully, obviously, as the Russians. We know that until we win the whole thing in 69. But at the time, the United States starts to test officially with intercontinental ballistic missiles by what 1950. We also have, we're also doing at this time, um, we decided to have like threefold, right? So you need to have the Air Force, so we have a lot of bombers, right? Yeah. Again, Russia's going to have more bombs, but we have more means, the United States, I don't want to say, the United States has more means of deploying them, right? Yep. So you have the air bombers, you have the ICBMs, and they're also working on the SLBMs, which are submerged missiles from like the submarines. Yep. Is a whole different thing. The idea is we can send a submarine somewhere off the coast, right? Those they're known as Polaris, missiles. Polaris submarines. Yeah, Polaris and yeah, Polaris submarines with Trident missiles, right? And those things are just going to be the same thing. Like they're going to cause a lot of damage because you can you can never track them. So the idea is all right, like the military bases, they can be bombed. Our missile silos, if they find out where they are, right, they can be attacked, but they're never going to find the submarines. Yeah. They're going to be all over the place, and then they're going to be able to just you know cause damage. And we're also building bigger bombs at this time too, right? You have we detonate our the biggest one we ever detonate is a fifteen ton, fifteen megaton bomb in um, nineteen fifty one called Castle Bravo, which is the biggest yield that the United States ever ever. Um, I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts ever detonates we create ones bigger than 15 megatons we never detonate one bigger than 15 megatons yeah um i guess that brings us to because now we're like talking late 50s and we're on a cusp of 1960s which is really as you mentioned at the beginning as well that was like the heyday of hey who's got the bigger missiles you know who's got the bigger guns bigger missiles I, worse big yeah, more dangerous missiles all that stuff i mean i think we should talk about the czar bomba right czar bomba yeah so this yeah what you want to say about. so, so the I mean, bomba is a huge bomb <laughs> the biggest to this bomb day ever. actually yeah so, so soviet well, ever Union, detonated ever, ever detonated ever detonated. ever yep biggest atomic or nuclear not atomic biggest nuclear weapon ever detonated um in history was a soviet device nicknamed czar bomba um or the czar's bomb really and it was set off on october 30th 1961 it was 50 megatons 
um, or equal basically to 50 million tons of conventional. Yeah, they were going to detonate a hundred megaton one, but what they realized is it was going to provide too much um, fallout and that there was no way for the bomber to get away before they would get caught up in the blast. So they're like, all right, let's try 50, 50 megatons first. Again, keep in mind, at this point, the United States had the biggest one with 15, 15. Yeah. And now they're yeah. like, you know what? We're going to go to 100. All right, 100 might be too much. Let's go to 50 first. And I think it kind of like freaks everybody out, the Tsar bomber, when it goes off. When this goes because, off, yeah. Because they kind of realize, all right, what's the real point of this? Like, one strategically, not sure if you can even build ones this big going forward, militarily-wise, you know? But it was a uranium-based bomb, uranium-232, fusion tamper, and it detonates, and it creates a massive explosion where um, the United States knew about it instantly. Oh, yeah. Like, as far as knowing what was going on, we had, like, planes actually following their plane. They were trying to keep it secret, um, but because of the fallout, and didn't, like, the shockwave, like, circle the Earth several times? Oh, to this day. I mean, this was... They, it, I think broke, Russia just it, it, de- officially declassified all the files not that long ago yeah, because that's that how it ago, was. Yeah. It was worse than we even thought. Yeah, it, it broke glass like miles away on these islands and stuff like that. Like the mo- it was felt like 10, 10 and a half miles in the sky, right? The altitude of so it almost blew up the bomb. There's actually pictures of it. We actually have some pictures of it. And pictures stuff are like nuts. That, of yeah, there's going, a little video that was released off. not that long ago. Yeah, not that not too long ago, but it kind of it basically freaked people out because it was what they call it was a very clean test. What that means is that. Um, it basically used up all the energy. It wasn't like wasted um, uranium charge and stuff like that. So it was it, it, it worked very, very well. More than 90% of the explosion power was provided by the thermonuclear explosion. It worked really well. Like, oh, this is awesome. It did increase a lot of increased radioactivity in the glaciers and stuff like that. Where they found, I mean, they there's found one village. That in 2015, yeah. Yeah, but there's one village that was like 34, 35 miles away from ground zero when this bomb blew up. And the entire village, 34 miles away, was just wiped out. Buildings, gone. Well, they say it, it was a 35 uh, radius, 35 kilometer radius. That was just totally, you can actually no, see it on like a map at Google Earth. And it's just black. Like, it, it just, it's done, you know? This, again, ups the ante of our arms race. You know, first was the idea of, okay, you could have ICBMs, but now just the sheer power of what this could do. This brings us to the next level, I would say. I mean, wouldn't, right? Well, yeah, well, it shows you that if they, if you can build a 15 megaton bomb, what's the limit, right? Right. And you Absolutely. can obviously build a 100 megaton because they were going to do that first. And how much megaton they have, they think the United States and Soviet Union or Russia today probably have bombs bigger than that that can produce much more of a yield than that today. Yeah. It's just they haven't tested them. They don't really test the weapons as much anymore. It's what they're ready, but they still build these things and they still have a bunch. But the idea is it got to a point where, again, we're talking about US has 5,500, they have 6,500. How many do you need to wipe out the world? You don't need yeah. that many. Like yeah, said, this kind of brings have, us closer to. They both have that they could blow up the world 13 times over. What's the point? Yeah. How many times have they blow up the world just once? Yeah. But also, this is the fact that we need to understand that, like, the Tsar Bomba comes out in 1961. Just think of the proximity to the infamous Cuban Missile Crisis, and that's only 1962. Within one and year, really starts, yeah. And, and this is different because this is again before that ICBM. So they, you know, we yeah. all talk about they're putting the missiles in Cuba and everything there, and that's when both sides. And we we'll get into the Cuban Missile Crisis another day, right? But just very you know, brief, brief synopsis, I guess, because that again could be a podcast. But the Cuban Missile Crisis, just a brief synopsis: you have a communist government under Fidel Castro takes over 
in Cuba. It allies itself with Soviet Union. Soviet Union brings in uh, missiles. Wants to put warheads. missiles there. Yes, they well, start they building silos. They basically are there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They start building silos with missiles in Cuba off the coast of Florida aimed at the United States. We get evidence of this. President Kennedy goes to national television, says, uh, yeah, this is bad. And the Russians yeah. are saying, listen, you have missiles in Turkey aimed at us, so we're just doing this as a counter, exactly. as a deterrent. And then the world holds right their breath for 13 days because as the Russian ships are coming over, um, Kennedy puts a naval blockade around Cuba, right? And like, what yeah. are they going to do? And eventually the Cuban ships do turn around. It's a lot of back channel deals. You have to remember, this is 1962. Like we said, there was no direct line between Moscow and Washington, D.C. Nope. So it was all back channels how these two sides were talking to each other. And that kind of changes. That's why there is a back shot. There is a direct line today. If, yeah. if Biden or Putin want to talk to each other, they can directly get in contact with each other. That line yeah. still exists. So I mean, they did. Didn't they have a conversation a few weeks yeah, before? Yeah, not too, a few weeks attack. before. Yeah. yeah. So there's, 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 a, there's a connection. So before, it's a way to kind of try to touch on things before things get out of control. They realize, listen, if we didn't have these backdoor channels, again, we can get into this with the Acute Missile Podcast at some point. I'm surprised we haven't done that already, actually. Yeah, actually. um, Yeah, I'm like, of all the things we've done. But um, so this is close. This is the closest we've ever come to World War III nuclear nuclear warfare. Yeah. Actual war. I mean, there's been chances, times when a nuclear weapons almost went off. Which I guess yep. we could talk about a little bit. Yeah, we whatever. can talk about broken hours later. Yeah, but um, you know that can be another thing too. Like I said, but uh, we talking. I said that a lot today, huh? Yeah, we're good. A lot of, uh, a, lot um, of uh, a lot of ideas come from this. But, but this um, scares this scares scares people. It scares yeah, people. Yeah, enough that we have a partial test ban treaty in October seventh, nineteen sixty-three. So yeah. all the major world powers basically agree that all right, uh, these weapons are getting a little intense. The Cuban Missile Crisis. We almost started shooting nukes at each other. So they basically agree that they're going to stop testing nuclear bombs anywhere but underground, right? So they, the well, this is, is just United States and um, sort of major the, world powers. China's well, not involved. I know China's, China's not, not involved, involved, but Ch- well, this is 1963. China detonates their first nuclear explosion in 1964, so they're yeah. right there, and they're and they're so still they're, like, buying, they're still yeah. they don't sign, and they're starting. They're doing theirs in um, atmosphere and underground. This is kind of like the first step in like people like, okay, maybe we'll slow down. But still, that doesn't mean that we're going to we're going to stop the arms race. I mean, the USSR, right, Soviet Union develops the um, anti-ballistic missile system to shoot down inbound U.S. missiles in 1968. Um, So now we're thinking like, all right, let's come up. This is like a precursor to our own Star Wars program later on. But, you know, the USSR is like we're going to create missiles to shoot down missiles that are flying towards us, because when you're thinking of an ICBM that's flying with a nuclear warhead across the earth to get to Soviet Union, that has to go almost into space, essentially. Like, you know, it goes into space and basically comes back and then down. comes back down. So the idea is that if they could detect this somehow, they basically Soviets created this anti-ballistic missile system to shoot them down. And we followed shortly thereafter with our own version. Uh, very crude at the time, but you know, we have it. And then we have the MIRV technology also in 1968 that we developed. So it's this idea of sending one missile out that has multiple um, warheads on it. So it's almost like you send one missile out and from that one missile, there's a bunch of smaller rockets that come out. It's like a a cluster bomb almost. Exactly. And it could hit multiple targets from one missile. So like if we could get one nuclear missile out into Soviet space during the cold war and, you know, not get it shot down, then from that missile, boom, you'll have like 30 little ones that will go. Yeah. yeah. The idea is you only need, if one of these smaller ones goes, makes they, it. What you see now in nuclear weapons, and we can get more back to the history of it in a second, but you have like 
the world buster ones, I guess you can call them. You also have one that's used that they talk about more, which are the tactical nuclear weapons. Still stronger than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These are city destroyers, but also tactical ones. Remember, there were even, I'm sure you saw, remember Atomic Betty? That was like the yeah. um, uh, uh, artillery cannon that shot like an, an atomic uh, mortar shell almost. Yeah. But they were yep, like, yep. Oh, we can't really get people away. Well, you know, the, really, the fallout's going to be. They were looking at all different ideas, you know. The only thing that would be dumber would be like, what, an atomic hand grenade? You know, just kind of throw it and get away, like things like that. But um, you have other countries that you have other treaties that come out, right? You have the Non-Proliferation Treaty um, in 1968 that both yep. sides are going to agree to um, never acquire nuclear weapons undertaking to disarm. We're going to actually start to disarm them. Um, and then, But India then conducts its first ever nuclear test in 1974. And then in 1979, I saw this was interesting. In September 22nd, 1979, there's a nuclear explosion in the Indian Ocean. No one really, right around the Cape of Good Hope. And they believe it was um, conducted by South Africa with the assistance of Israel. Hmm. And it's also unique because South Africa later on is actually the only country that have nuclear weapons that voluntarily gives them up. I mean, we've signed so many treaties over the years, really starting with um, oh, the 70s, right? Yeah. yeah, you have the SALT-1, the um, yeah. strategic... SALT-1, uh, SALT-2, yeah. Yep, SALT-1 is 72, SALT-2 is 79... Then the INF Treaty in 87, then 1991, Start 1, 93, Start 2. It actually goes all the way to 2010, the new start. We should actually get into the MAD, right? Well, yeah, MAD is a big thing. It, it was basically our structure for our military strategy up for most of the Cold War, right? MAD, yeah. mutually assured destruction that we're going to have so many weapons, you're going to have so many weapons that we're just going to have that the number to be able to wipe each other out. And MAD, yeah. and MAD as far as being, it's crazy. And that's what kind of the president, particularly, I guess we're fast forwarding a little bit here, but uh, Reagan and um, Gorbachev kind of look at, right? They kind of realize this at one point, right? They're like, basically, we're having, we have weapons now. That was the idea. By 1970s and 80s, leaders from both sides, really, Soviet Union and the United States, begin to realize that the weapons that we have now created, we actually cannot use. They're too they're, big. There's too strong. There's too many. It's, yep. And they're expensive to maintain. You have to understand that, too, or keep yep. on the ready. Most of the atomic weapons that both countries have, they're not they're not armed. You don't want to keep these things armed. Yeah. So like it takes time to assemble them and put them together, have them ready to go, which in a way is good because you know you don't want them at the put it's not they always have the thing as a push of a button. There's no red button that you push that all the weapons go off. That yep. that, that doesn't exist. There's a nuclear the nuclear football is real. That's because it's a briefcase it? with the codes. Well, it's a briefcase with the codes. What's scary is that at one time it was lost. <laughs> That's like the scary thing too. <laughs> Who does that? Uh, Russia has out of more than about half of theirs, 2,870 warheads are inactive. They just have them. You know, yeah. the United States has over 2,000 that are, again, inactive. They're just hidden. They're somewhere like we don't really use them, nor can we really access them quickly. We just have them. Well, this is scary, too, is that after the fall of the Soviet Union, they believe they lost over 100 um, bombs that they really don't know where they are. What? upwards of 100 nuclear suitcase bombs, smaller bombs that they're not actually a you know, suitcase, but smaller bombs. And they're thinking that the Soviet Union just, they, yeah, there's over wow. 100 just lost. I mean, where are they? Wait, the thing about I mean, this we way, lost so a bunch too, but they were lost in like crashes and stuff. These are the ones that the cold war falls, right? They were in these different places. That's, that's a lot of bombs. <laughs> like, yeah. They don't know where they are. No, but like, <laughs> And this stems from an idea that the nuclear proliferation, right, reached its peak. They are, you could say the arms race reached its peak at about 70,000 missile-mounted nuclear warheads in 1986. 70,000. That's insane. And now from that point forward, we had, you know, Soviet Union, 86, 
and the United States started to be like, all right, mad, mutual destruction, not going to work. So they started passing these mutual disarmament agreements. Uh, first was the, like the main real success one was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF, in 1987, which severed us that right, we're going to start taking some of these old things apart, like some of the, like the original weapons uh, that were no longer really applicable or useful because their old technology will take them apart. So they started doing that. And that's why we have less than 70,000. I mean, they had 70,000 missile-mounted nuclear warheads in 1986. You know, then you have the strategic arms reduction talks that began in the 80s and basically continued on and off. Like, that's what we're saying. The, you know, the start, you, they're, please, the last one was in 2000s, you know, 2010. So we're continuously doing this. Considering the fact that we went from 70,000 to 86 to, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, about 13,000 in 2022, you know, some of these treaties did actually work. You know, like we, we did make the world a little yeah, safer. They reduced them. They reduced the range of a lot of them. You know, they, so they are realizing this. And all the countries joined South Africa. Like we talked to that. Southeast Asia becomes nuclear free. Africa becomes a nuclear free zone. Um, one that, you know, and then talking about Ukraine again in 1996, they become a nuclear free state. They transfer the last of its inherited Soviet nuclear warheads back to Russia to be uh, taken apart. Yeah. That was kind of like they, they kind of agreed to do that. Yeah. So imagine if Ukraine sells nuclear weapons today. Crazy. Changes the whole situation. Oh yeah. Um, Jason, the uh, remember reading the 1970 Treaty of Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons? This is interesting. It authorized essentially the United Nations Security Council um, authorizes five permanent members: the United States, Russia, China, France, and United Kingdom, to possess nuclear weapons on their territory with no need for justification or explanation. They they could just have them. Yeah, we, is, we have them, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, like, we are the Security Council. So it's like, yeah, we're going to choose. Yeah. And, and that's why a lot of countries get mad, like a country like North Korea, where they're like, well, listen, we should have them if we want to have It's It's a very tricky thing. How can one country tell another country not to have them when they have them? Um, and other countries have joined that nuclear club since then, right? We know that um, India did, and Pakistan uh, conducts their um, first one, their, their, their test and response to India. North Korea conducts a. Um, underground test they say in um october of 2006 okay again you don't hear about it as much as anymore as the massive testing but every once in a while there'll be something to talk about or iran is there's always rumors that iran is trying to produce nuclear weapons and this is all against the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty of 96 because basically proposed that no additional countries be allowed to create or possess nuclear weapons no yeah if you have them you have them no other countries will have them yeah yeah so let's oh, talk about some of the numbers. I looked at the peaks here. So as we said earlier, right, United States has about 5,550 nuclear weapons. Um, about 1,800 of those are in strategic deployment. Um, like you mentioned, they're all over the world and they actually could be used. And another about 3,000 or so, um, based on the one source, are in storage of various sites and various states of readiness, some more than others. So about 2,000 of those are like hardcore storage. Um, but they could be mailed, you know, made available quickly if, if there's a need for them. Not that there really is, because we started using that. There was no Earth. But this is a fraction of what the U.S. had at its peak. So in, in 1967, we had 31,225 mm. nuclear weapons. Think about that. that even... <laughs> what? And in 89, we had 22,217. Um, we, and... we did have more than the Soviet Union. We dismantled more than they did also since then. Yep. Yep. And Russia actually obviously downsized their nuclear arsenal as well, but they still possess roughly you know, over 6,000 warheads. But based on one source that I saw, it, they say that 
their strategically deployed and ready to fire number is about 1625 to ours, which is believed to be about 1800. But again, we're talking about it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't once you have if you don't want one going off, you yeah, know, I was I mean? gonna say. forget about 1600. Like, and obviously one is not going to be wipe everything out. I'm not saying that, but like, you don't want any of these going off because if one goes off more will, it's not just going to be one and done. Both sides are going to be, there's going to be retaliation. That's what Matt is all about, even though it's not really looked at it before. The idea is, you know, why even have these weapons at all? You know, there's a lot of other weapons that can cause a lot of damage. Why have these? Because it can also be an accident. What if an, what if an accident happens and, one of these weapons go off or if someone that's transporting these weapons crashes and there are safeguards for that but not every safeguard can always uh necessarily be ready to go you know that necessarily might work that's nuts i mean like the uk right has a stockpile of about 200 nuclear weapons so and 40 of them are continuously deployed in one of their four submarines like just patrolling the you know the english coast and the english channel yeah, yeah exactly just, just ready to go same thing with the, with the with the american yeah subs and i'm sure the russian subs like they're they're there like they're just kind of patrolling and they're turning the keys and that's it it's gonna fire well i don't know if there's any such thing as fun facts about nuclear weapons and again this isn't trying to scare people which is like the numbers if anything it actually is safer now than what it was you know in In the the 40s and the 50s and definitely the 60s so like there are things there um the whole idea wouldn't like they get back to modern times putin saying on oh, putting the forces on high alert that's nothing new that, that, yeah. that ha- that's happened before and to put them on high alert what does that really mean that just means that they're on they're they're making sure those things are manned well they should be manned they should be people watching these weapons right you know, stuff think. like that a, a bit more closely all right um the, the government if you read a lot of like their government responses they're like you know he shouldn't have really said that or done that but it's not really it doesn't change anything it's not going to change um it's a scare tactic. It's something that people are definitely aware of, but it's not a policy changer or for anything. Yep. Simply putting them on high alert. Well, anyway, that's our uh, that's our podcast on uh, nuclear weapons, a history of nuclear weapons. We definitely came up with a lot of different topics we could be doing podcasts on while doing this one. Yeah, I know. We should have been writing some of those down. But I know. We <laughs> never write them down. And we never listen to this podcast after we record it. So this is all lost. All of our ideas are always lost. We've got to get a better system, Tommy. we got to work on this. At some point. Yeah. at some point well anyway thank you so much everyone for tuning in once more to listen to our podcast if you're new to our podcast this is what we do we're two history teachers that basically pick a topic and or you know it is suggested to us and we go out and do our own research at our own time and the first time we are talking about this topic is right here right now so what you're listening to is basically a, our first conversation on this topic always every single week if you want to contact us you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com Please feel free to email us, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast, and do not forget to subscribe. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, 
We dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.